While you're finding where in the world Titus is, and opening up to that third chapter, um, so many of you know we were on vacation last week. It was wonderful, and so we weren't here last Sunday, and so I wasn't able to comment uh, on the events that transpired the day before, like I would have wanted to had I been here. Um, and that's probably a good thing, because I'm, I'm, I'm a slow processor. It takes me a while to chew on things uh, and decide what it is that I think about them and perhaps what might need to be said. But I just wanted to share with you three of the things that I've been mulling over in my mind this week about, uh, about those events and just about the continued uh, struggle. You know, we, we've come a long way, and yet there's a long way to go uh, when it comes to uh, racial harmony, uh, certainly living in a city like Orangeburg. We're all well acquainted. But here's three of the things that I've been thinking about this week, and I'll just share them with you um, for what they're worth. The first thing is that words are important, but they're not enough. Um, it, it is, it's important to declare. Uh, it is important to state clearly that racism's wrong, that any kind of racial superiority is wrong, and it's wrong because it's antithetical to the gospel. Um, and so we've got to declare our opposition to these things. But that's not enough. Those words are not enough. They're important, but they're not enough. We've got to demonstrate what it is that we believe. So that's the first thought. And the second thought flows from that, that I've just been thinking about this week. We can't just be what we're not. Right? We can't just respond to things like this in the negative by declaring, well, I'm not racist. Right? I'm not, basically, it's not enough to just not hate. Right? We, might, we might say, well, I don't hate my brothers and sisters. And that's not enough. Because the biblical command is a positive command. It's a command to love. So it's not enough to just not hate. We've got to love. The, the third thing that I've been thinking about is that there's so much about these events and about uh, the ongoing struggle that's couched in terms of being offended. You hear a lot of people talk about the situation of, of, uh, of people being offended, perhaps too easily offended. And ironically, deeply ironic, I've noticed lots of people this week, as I've been thinking about this, who are deeply offended by people being too easily offended. And, and I'm not even sure that being offended is what this is really all about. I don't think that it is. But it doesn't matter ultimately. Because here's the thing. If we're Jesus people... Right. If we're following in the way of Jesus, y'all just flip through the pages of the Gospels and you're going to find Jesus laying down his rights. Rights that he could have easily defended and said, oh no. And he laid them down time and again. And so the question that I would just leave you with and encourage you to ask yourself as you process through these events and, and this struggle, 
Do you find yourself laying down your rights or do you find yourself defending your rights? And where is the way of Jesus in that? All right, turn the page. We're moving on to Titus now. Okay. Uh, we're continuing in our series on born again, trying to understand what it means to be born again, why it's necessary, what it involves, what it affects. And we come this morning to a classic text talking about the new birth. And it's interesting that it is such a classic text about the new birth because it's not really about the new birth at all. The new birth is sort of buried here in the middle of this passage, surrounded on both sides by things that are greatly affected by the new birth. And that that seems right for this topic because very often being born again is not front and center in a biblical text, but it deeply impacts all manner of things in our, in our belief, in our doctrine, uh, and, in, and in our behavior. And so I find that the new birth is, is at the core of this passage that we're looking at. It's at the core, and it's at the core of so much of what we believe and, and do. And it reminded me again of that quote from Sinclair Ferguson that I think I shared with you the, the very first week in this series, right? That it is, being born again is perhaps the most crucial doctrine of all as it paves the way for all the other doctrines that we believe. And so we'll see this week from this passage in Titus how the new birth is at the core of three things. It's at the core of our behavior. It's at the core, of course, of our salvation And even, and this might be a little surprising, it's at the core of our relationship with the lost. So let me ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of God. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you help us? Would you help us as we continue to see the new birth as we continue to see being born again as this essential doctrine, would you help us, O oh God, as we see it as, the, as at the core of our behavior, the core of our salvation, 
And indeed, Lord, the the core of how we would relate to the lost world around us, would you grant to us your help in seeing these things and in being transformed by them. Don't let us be like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he looks like. But change us, O God, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So let's jump right into the first one of these three things that the new birth is at the core of. It's at the core of our behavior. And y'all, that's really what Titus 3 is about. Paul wasn't setting out to write a chapter in a letter about the new birth. He's writing about Christian behavior. And it just so happens that the new birth is at the core of Christian behavior behavior. And so part of what Titus is doing, Titus being one of Paul's protégés, one of the people that he's been discipling or mentoring, he's left Titus on the island of Crete to set some things straight there with the church, a church that Paul had apparently planted, and this church needed some help. And so that's the context of this remind them that we see here at the beginning of verse 1. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So we've got a nice little list here in these two verses of what can easily be just classified as good Christian behavior, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't this world be a better place if a lot more people just checked off the boxes on this list? Right? But if Paul is telling Titus to remind them, safe to say they're, they're struggling a bit. Right? If, you, if they need reminding, they're, they're struggling. and There's lots on this list. There's lots to remember and to keep straight. And so if this is a relatively young church... It's going to be filled with relatively young and even baby Christians, right? And y'all, some of the old ways and the habits, they die hard, right? And that would be true anywhere. That would be true in any new church. That would be true among any new converts. But we need to remember this is Crete of all places. That doesn't mean anything to you? Well... It means something in the context of this letter that Paul is writing to Titus. And and he gives us the context early on in chapter 1 about what was special about the Cretans. Um, Titus 1, verses 10 through 13. I think I put that on a slide. Uh, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And what does Paul say? He says, this testimony is true. (laughs) Right? Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Right? So, so the Cretans apparently came from a rough stock. Right? And they probably very much embodied 
what Paul says in verse 3. Right? So if verses 1 and 2 is this list of good Christian behavior, verse 3 is a good synopsis of their past, what they're coming out of. Ver- verse 3, look, look closely at what they once were. Right? They once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days. Like, what do you do to pass the time? What do you do for fun? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's quite a list. That's quite a list here, left to their own devices, left to the way they were naturally bent and broken by the fall. The Cretans were a mess. Let's look at this list one by one. They were foolish. Right, So, so the, their mind had been affected, bent and broken by the fall. Right? They were disobedient. It wasn't just their mind, but it was also their will. Right? They, were, they were led astray. So they were acted on by an external force. Y'all, in a very real sense, they're victims. But they're also enslaved. That they're held captive by something on the inside as well. It's very much what sin does to us. Our desires and our pleasures enslave us. And, and so this passing their days, this, it's habitual. It's not just occasional. It's habitual. It's ingrained, right? In malice, right? Wishing evil of a, for others, and the opposite thing is next, envy, right? We're jealous when good happens. We want evil to happen, and we're jealous when it doesn't. We're jealous when something good happens. Which, of course, leads to their being hated, and they're hating one another. This reciprocal hostility, which, if you think about it for just a second, it's the only logical outcome, right? If they are enslaved to and pursuing passions and desires then what are other people but obstacles to that pursuit? Right? All other people can be is getting in my way of me, getting my desires met, getting my pleasures met. It's quite a list of evils. Now, here's a big question. How do you get from this list of evils where you started from in verse 3? And wind up at the good Christian behavior of verses 1 and 2. How does it happen that you used to pass the time being malicious and envious, and now all of a sudden you're showing perfect courtesy to all? How does that happen? That's a big question. And I'll give you a hint. The answer starts with born and it ends with again. Right? That's the answer. But here's an even bigger and closely related question. What's the relationship between born again and this list of good behaviors? What's the relationship here? If one were a cart and one were a horse which is which 
Does our good behavior lead to the new birth? Or does the new birth lead to and enable the good behavior? Y'all, and this is a big question, bigger than some of you may think. Because this question and how you answer this question really splits the church into two groups. One group, and y'all, I hate labels. Um, one group, the majority of us, right, of, of a Presbyterian or a Reformed persuasion, or dare I say, Calvinistic, um, we believe that the new birth is something that God does to us that enables us to respond to Him. But others see, even one of the commentaries that I read this week, see the new birth as something that God does to us once we place our faith in Christ. And that's a big difference. That's a big difference. It's either God's initiative in causing us to be born again or God giving the new birth to us in response to our initiating to Him. Let me say it another way because I want you to get this. Hopefully this is more simple. Are we born again and then we believe? The, the theological speak there is regeneration preceding faith. Right? We're, we're born again and then we believe and embrace the gospel. That's option one. Or option two, do we believe... And then we're born again. And the theological speak there would be faith preceding regeneration. Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise as to where I'm going to fall on this, right? (laughs) Um, And y'all, from the text that we've been looking at in the series, it seems pretty clear. Think about some of these texts. Think about Ezekiel 37 and these dry, picked clean bones that aren't even connected to one another. They're just laying in the desert, baking. They don't seem to be much doing much in the way of placing their faith in God. It's a pretty stark image that God gives us through his prophet. And y'all, I don't think that these heathen Cretans just woke up one day and said, hey, let's not pass the day in malice and envy. Let's do something different. I don't think that that happened. In fact, I know that it didn't happen because it couldn't happen. It could not happen. One of the texts that I have been debating back and forth about trying to get to in this series, and I don't think that I'm going to, is 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking to the church there in Corinth about their role as ambassadors for Christ, about their role as messengers of the gospel. And he says something really interesting and insightful in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians in verses 3 and 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, that is, if it can't be seen by some, right? Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, 
the God of this world, that is Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The Cretans didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, let's do something different. They didn't do that because they couldn't do that. One of the things that makes the new birth a necessity is blindness. Spiritual blindness. Bent and broken by the fall, we can't see the reality of our problem. There's no way that the Cretans could have seen verse 3 and believed that about themselves. There's no way that they could have seen the fact that they had been deceived and led astray and enslaved and that they were passing their days in malice and envy. They were blind to it and they were also blind to the solution to the problem that they didn't know they had. They were blind, we are blind, and completely without hope until this next point where we see how the new birth is at the core of our salvation. What a glorious conjunction verse 4 begins with. It's the best conjunction in all of Scripture, but... We were without hope. We were doomed. We were condemned. We were the just recipients of God's wrath. But, verse 4 says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. We saw the exact same thing when we looked at Ephesians 2 in the very first sermon in this series. Very similar description in Ephesians 2 of how bad off we were. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead and not crying out for help, by the way. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. This is the pattern. This is what we see again and again. But God. And it is always but God. It is never but we. Never, never, ever. He doesn't say, but when we got our act together, or but when we finally came to our senses, it says, but God, it is always but God. It is always the sovereign, gracious, merciful action of God, our Savior. In every single text that we've looked at, time and again. These verses in Titus are no exception. Verses 4 through 7 are are such a great summary of God's saving activity in our lives. Look first at the main action that we get to in verse 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's what He was doing. He saved us. He's our Savior. And what do saviors do? They save. He saved us. I think that language has fallen out of favor sometimes. Kind of like asking folks, are you born again? 
right? Have you been saved? Right? It, it may have fallen out of parlance, but y'all, it's exactly what it is. <laughs> we're saved. We're, we're rescued. That's what you and I need. It's not a, a more fulfilling life. It's not a more meaningful life. It's life, period. Saved from death. Saved from wrath. Now look at the things in this passage that, that motivate God to do this saving. Right? It's, it's His goodness. It's His loving kindness. It's His mercy. And it's His grace. And I almost feel like a bit of a broken record because we've seen this in each of these passages that we've looked at too. This is always the motivation. This is always what's going on in His saving us. Now, why is being born again at the core of our salvation? Because it's, it's the how, right? It's how God goes about doing the saving, right? And we see that very clearly in verse 5, right? He saved us, and we'll get to the not in a minute. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen this pair before this pair of actions on God's part, one of cleansing, one of renewing. We saw it in John 3 when Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And we connected the dots and realized that what Jesus must have been alluding to there was what we saw in Ezekiel 36, where the prophecy was, in the new covenant, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water and cleanse you of all your uncleannesses, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There's cleansing and there's renewal. And we need both because the cleansing deals with our past. The cleansing deals with, with verse 3 out of our passage today. All of the evil that we have been engaged in. That's what the cleansing is for. The renewing. The putting His Spirit in us, the pour, in this language of this passage, pouring out my Spirit, we've got to have that to enable verses 1 and 2. If there's ever to be any good Christian behavior from us that springs from faith and not from uh, legalism or Pharisaism or, or, or behavior modification, if there's to be any true God-glorifying Christian behavior in us, it's got to come from this renewal that the Holy Spirit brings. We need cleansing. We need renewal. That's how He saves us. That's why being born again is at the core. But you will notice, and I skipped over it earlier, Paul is careful to point out how we are not saved. And that he has to point it out is just a testament to our proclivity, our, our bent <laughs> Right? We want to think that we had something to do with it. We want to think that we had a part. 
And God is is specifically pointing out through Paul, um, no. Not at all, whatsoever, in any way. It's His mercy. It's His mercy alone. The new birth is at the core of our behavior. It's at the core of our salvation. And lastly, it's also, or at least it should be, at the core of our relationship with the lost. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, all these things that he's been teaching. And I want you to insist on these things. Right? Insist on all of it. The behavior, the past evil you were engaged in, and certainly the salvation that comes by mercy through regeneration. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and they're profitable for people. Now here's how I see the new birth at the core of our relationship with the world around us. And it actually ties back to that behavior at the very beginning. Because right, this is ultimately a passage about behavior. The new birth is buried in the middle because it affects our behavior. But, but here's the connection, I think. It's twofold. The new birth ought to have an impact on what we expect from others in terms of their behavior. And it ought to have an impact on how we are careful to devote ourselves in our behavior. It should impact what we expect from others. It should impact how we are careful to devote ourselves to this. So let's deal with the first one first. What do we expect from the lost around us in terms of their behavior? What do we expect of those who have been led astray and held captive and who have been blinded by the enemy? What what do we expect them to do and to act like? I wonder maybe if if Titus was, was frustrated a bit by the, by the slow progress of, of these new Cretan believers and, and probably by the whole host of Cretans around him who had not placed faith in, in Christ, I wonder if he was frustrated by that. And perhaps that's why Paul words verse 3 like he does. Because I skipped over it earlier, but he starts with a reminder Titus, we were just like them. We were in the same boat, Titus. Don't forget. Don't forget that was us too. And see, Paul did this exact same thing in his letter to the Ephesians. When we looked at that in Ephesians 2. right? He's saying we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And he says in Ephesians 2.3, he said among whom we all once lived. It was us. It was us. Don't forget where you've come from. It's as if he's saying to Titus, hey, remember 
remember Titus, it's the new birth that makes the difference. It's being born again that has changed you. Being born again is the only reason that we're no longer like them. They don't have the power. They don't have the ability to to behave like good Christians when they're not. They can't do it until they're regenerated and renewed. And if we will remember that, if we will remember that the lost behave like they do because they've been led astray, because they're held captive, because they're blinded, if we can remember that, then we will be able to respond to them like Jesus responded to them. How did Jesus respond to the lost? When he looked at the lost, he saw them as harassed and helpless. Like the shepherdless sheep that they were. And he had compassion on them. If we don't remember... If we forget that it's the new birth that makes the difference, if we don't remember the we once all were aspect of this, then we're going to be smug. And we're going to be shaking our heads in disgust. And we're going to be saying, oh, how could they? If we forget this, we end up being jerks. And we blame the lost for acting like lost people. But if we do remember, if we do remember that it's the new birth that makes the difference, it makes us humble, it makes us grateful. So the lesson here is to remember that we've been born again. Hopefully that will keep us from being ungrateful jerks. Now, that's the behavior that we expect from the world. What about the behavior that Paul tells us to be careful to devote ourselves to? What's up with that? Well, it's the only logical option for people who've been born again. If, if, if you think about it, for people who have been regenerated made anew, washed, reborn, His Spirit poured out on us, then we now can and we must do what we've been recreated to do. If we've been made new, we will in fact live new lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Classic verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. I think that created there is talking about the new birth. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's what we were made to do. It's what we were remade to do, enabling us to do it. And it has a direct impact on our relationships with the lost, on our effectiveness as Christ's ambassadors. Let me finish with this last verse from Matthew 5. What's the role of our behavior? Why should we be careful to devote ourselves to good works now that we can do them because we've been made new? Now that we've been enabled by God's Spirit to do them, why should we do them? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now that's why the new birth is at the core of our behavior. And we've already seen this from the other passages we've been in. It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. It's not even so much that others will come to believe and place their faith in Him, though that's what this is referencing. That's just a means to the end of God being glorified. Let's pray. Oh, Father, indeed, would you help us as we continue to put all these pieces together and and seek to understand rightly from your word, what it means to be born again, why it's necessary, how you bring it about in your grace and your mercy. And God, I do pray that you'd help us to see how it's at the core of our behavior, not so that we'd be good little boys and girls, but so that you'd be glorified. Well, God, help us to see that. Help us to be humbled by the new birth. Help us to be full of joy because of the new birth. And God, keep us by your grace from being ungrateful jerks to those around us. Pray that you do all this for your sake and for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing in response.